0: To now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is John Earls. John began specialising in music journalism when he edited Teletext's music section, Planet Sound, on Channel 4 from 2000 to 2009. Readers included Robert Smith, Bell and Sebastian, Debbie Harry and Nicky Wire, who sent an angry email to Bono to complain about Bono's Dublin Hotel of Pleasance not having Teletext in the rooms. John then had a column in the News of the World until the paper's closure in 2011 interviewing amongst others Kylie, Katy Perry, Dave Grohl and, crucially, Annie. John can now be found regularly writing cover interviews for the wonderful classic pop magazine, from Duran and Spandau to Cyndi Lauper and Blondie. And if that wasn't enough, he has also edited Loaded, interviewed footballers about their music tastes and writes about music for record collector NME, The Daily Star, The Daily Express, The Vinyl Whistle and Super Deluxe Edition. John, welcome back to now. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, excellent. All good. All good. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on the Back To Now podcast. As you will know, this is a chance to celebrate the variously compiled world of pop, where we go back and we ask our guests to choose a period of time and an album, and we take a good dig into the tracks that are there. Before we do that, let's talk a bit about yourself and music growing up. How did music come into your life then, John?
1: It's funny, I can't really remember a specific time where... it I guess the most specific time would have been when I was about seven or eight and uh, got into Adamant, you know, as with pretty much everyone in my generation growing up in the early 80s. A lot of things sprang off from that, but it wasn't like music was a tradition in my family at all. Neither my parents were into music. Uh, I've got an older brother who's four or five years older than me. Music's just not something he's into either so in that respect it was a bit of an anomaly in our family we did have a uh, we did have a record player but um, I was the first one to really make use of it other than I guess my dad was into classical music, which is how come we had the turntable. But pop music, you know, I was the first one. Adamant being a sort of shiny golden figure to emerge that I first became aware of, I say would have been the Kings of the Wild Frontier. No, sorry, would have been Prince Charming actually and going back to Kings of the Wild Frontier later, but Prince Charming I remember getting for Christmas one year when I would have been I would have been eight, I guess.
0: Yeah, I also got the Prince Charming album for Christmas. That would have been Christmas '81, and that gatefold—it was just incredible. And I went back and listened to that album recently. It's quite a strange album. It's a
1: very strange album. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's one where I mean, I've been lucky enough to talk to Adam a couple of times for for classic pop over the years. He sees it as an album that was rushed and didn't quite work, and that there's too much filler on it for him. And I do see where he's coming from, but equally it's just an album that's so kind of strange and unusual as a the album that year by the biggest mainstream pop turn on the, you know, in the country at the time. Aside from the singles, there's just so much else going on where it's, you know, it's like Five Guns West and Mohawk and Picasso, a Planet of Delos Simios. It's just not what a mainstream pop star should have been doing in 1981 or any other year before or since. It's just a completely gloriously peculiar album for that. But then, so uh, whatever era of Adam you go to, it's almost all like that. There's there's never anything that you'd expect him to to be doing particularly. What else was influencing your first listening choices then when you were growing up? I was a big looking back on it. I was a big synth pop fan. I mean, I got into soft sell quite early on. The first single I ever bought was Mickey by Tony Basil. So you know the kind of the glam rock side of it was there as well, I guess. But it was just a case that. I, I still, I still feel it now, and you know that I'm looking forward to to watching the uh, Dylan Jones '80s documentary, and you know, see, seeing if that kind of tallies with, with the reviewed. It was, it was one of the golden eras. It was, it was kind of the only era where anyone at all could be a pop star. I think people like Billy Mackenzie and Mark Almond and Boy George and and so on and so on and so on were just celebrated. The squares could be in pop stars as well, you know.
0: I'm very much looking forward to seeing it as well. The BBC quite regularly do the what was the greatest decade type thing Um, and I think you know they did it a number of years ago Danny Baker chaired it and I think at that point this must be about a decade ago the 70s one but you know there's always that argument that just the bravado and it comes across in Dylan's book that dashing and that almost that ability to be anything that you wanted to be that the 80s had
1: I I think that's absolutely true and I think it's also the case that where the 80s honed what the 70s suggested is that in the 70s you had trailblazers you know you had the obvious trailblazers like you know Bowie and Marley and so on that suggested that anyone could be a pop star but it wasn't i don't think personally it was it was until the 80s that became almost a norm that the singer you know the regular singer songwriters didn't really get a foot in the into the 80s they had done in the 70s because it was still all about the adventurousness of what the synthesizer threw up you know it was just kind of as i say anyone could do this compilation albums did they feature in your purchasing no they didn't and uh, i don't quite know where this attitude came from but from the outset of me getting into music i was a ridiculous snob about compilation albums and that's something that's only to be perfectly honest with you relatively recently stopped being part of my own music taste i am now willing to consider best of albums and willing to consider compilation albums as perfectly good tasters, which is what they absolutely should be. But for whatever reason, once I started buying music when I was eight or nine, I was immediately like, okay, well I, you know, I some sort of mini enemy reviewer <laughs> thinking that this is, you know, this is not for me. I have to own all the complete works of Adamant, of Soft Cell, of Pet Shop Boys, of yuzu of so on and so on, that I just get their albums. Looking back, I would change how I'd approach that and have more entry points into other music rather than being obsessed by the 20 or 30 artists I've been to in any year
0: a lot of us as listeners go the other way we're going to start with compilations and work up to the albums
1: that's probably a better way to do it if I'm honest with you but but you know as I say I didn't have any I guess my only excuse is that I didn't have any guiding figures in my life who were kind of helping me along and saying you might want to consider at least one now album before you go <laughs> out and buy that third big country album and um,
0: so you weren't swayed by the k Tells and the Roncos then
1: I was not swayed by the k tails <laughs> and the Wonkos. No, no, I'd, uh, I'd 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 save up the pocket money and volunteer to do all the usual car washing or whatever around the house, and convince my parents to kind of hopefully chuck me an extra quid's pocket money along the way to get me to get me towards the Amazon I was after. Did
0: you ever find yourself though making your own compilations? I mean were you that blank cassette person?
1: <laughs> yeah, I was for sure. Certainly when I was around 13, 14 and you know, like many other guests on uh, that you've had on the podcast. I am still someone who thinks that any album over longer than 45 minutes has to have a damn good reason for being longer than 45 minutes. Because although I don't understand the fetishization of the cassette as a pre-recorded format and that's return, I do feel that the C90 is a gr- is a great way to showcase a showcase your own music tastes. And you know, it's quite I I think one of the reasons I became a music journalist, if I was to justify it, is that. I'd love to be, a, you know, I'd love people to be into decent music, however they come across it. And that kind of started for me fairly Early on in school when I was probably about 14 or 15 that I would make compilation Tapes for Friends so yeah I was a big I was a big C90 person which Kind of continued on you know to this Day my wife insists that I make her playlist Every now and again so you know it's ongoing And do you stick to that same time frame When you make the playlist? No that's a Really good point I, I, I probably should Have more discipline I mean for instance My uh, my rolling Best of 2021 playlist is, is Well over 100 songs now All these songs are fantastic in their own way but no it's 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 probably a good discipline to have to kind of try and limit it to 90 minutes at least
0: it's here now 64
1: featuring the massive number one from niles barkley 83
0: chart smashes, now 64 with all the biggest hits, the original and still the best, now 64, that's what I call music. So let's move on to your chosen period of time and we are going back to summer 2006 and we're going to look specifically at now 64. What is a significance for you for the summer of 2006?
1: Well it's a couple of things really I mean firstly it was when I was fully fully immersed in uh, in working at Teletext at that time which was a great period personally for it being a one-man band where I was kind of left to get on with it which is a dream Freddy music journalist I was left to get on with it that I could kind of do so long as I got the occasion you know we had a big weekend interview and as long as the big weekend interviews with a musician that the editor had heard of, then for the other four days a week, I was left to basically do what I wanted in terms of who to interview, who to review, who to who to write about generally. And it just meant that I was kind of going down all kinds of obscure rabbit holes. And to be fair to Teletext at the time, they had the budget where, we, where I was also able to get specialist writers and genres that I wasn't so familiar with, like metal and hip hop on board as well. The feature set at the time, a brilliant guy called Colin Irwin really knew his folk music. So if you wanted to know about folk music, Teletext was as good a place as any to read about it. Summer 2006, I would have known more than any time before since on a personal basis, kind of exactly what was going on in music. But also I'd thought about it. And once I started researching into now 64 specifically, that it was a great time for having a lot of music a lot of disparate music in the charts and I feel like it was the last time where anything could become a hit but there were reasons showcased on Now 64 as to why that ended around about that time. The death of the single you can kind of make a case that it was around 2006 the single as we know it started to be killed off and I think it's never really recovered and I feel it's it's a great tragedy, and I don't know the answer. But I feel it's a great tragedy that the top forty singles is now not as relevant as the top forty albums, and that somewhere along the way it started to flip over. That now we're in a case where the album chart is very diverse and to be celebrated, and the singles chart is where it's stultified, and you get songs that you don't really that don't really enter the public conscience. Perhaps yeah. can be number one for seven or eight weeks and not really not really impinge on the wider cultural con- conversation particularly as you see, you can
0: start to see why we've now got to where we've got to with regards to music consumption how people were purchasing or not purchasing music yeah how they were accessing on music culture prior to this the single was that defining access point to
1: music absolutely and I think uh, I think it's a very good point about the taking ownership of of a single and taking ownership of one's own tastes in music and you know there's all kinds of arguments that have been had and that are way too deep to go into even on a podcast like this <laughs> where people's tastes is it a good thing that people you know that there are no tribes anymore probably yes but equally having that kind of passion for it having that passion you get from a tribe and from identifying with taking ownership of a band and making it your band that kind of starts to fade away Around about this period Again hasn't been replaced For better or worse And what we actually see on
0: this album as well You can identify tribes But it's getting harder
1: Yeah, absolutely agree And I think it's great that If only now 110 Could be as eclectic as now 64 Amazing Now 64 There's there's a lot of stuff where you do, you do raise A slightly quizzical eyebrow At some of the songs that are that are on the compilation but I you know there are some there are a few lost gems on it as well I think but it was you know it was a great eye-opener for how diverse the scene was and how kind of unusual certain aspects of it were in terms of how many cover versions were kind of flying around mm. the charts at that point when there was no need for them to to be there and what it said about particularly dance music at the time or where that where that led to that's Again, the reverberations are still being felt now, perhaps.
0: We've got dance tracks, we have got indie tracks, we've got a lot of cover versions, as you say. There's a bit of R&B, there's big, big names from the pop past, and there's names that actually came and went very, very quickly. So from a now point of view, it's almost a perfect snapshot
1: absolutely and it's you know as say it it's it, it's what you'd want from an now album of any era but i think it's a you know it's it's a good now album from that era for just as you say being what everyone would want from a from a, from a broad taster album as, as the Now series should be <laughs> This next track was the biggest selling track in 2006. It made musical history uh, by being the only track ever to get to number one on download sales only, and it was at number one for nine weeks, would you believe? It's crazy, it's Niles Barkley.
0: CD one, track one, Crazy by Niles Barkley.
1: Yes, I mean, obviously the song has has been tainted by CeeLo Green's behavior since, and it does mean that the song has, You know, it's hard to talk about the song with dispassionate view. But a great single at the time, it's, you know, as a song, separating the song from the artist, except as much as you can. It's a fantastic song. And also it represented something on a much wider basis that we've briefly touched on, that it was the first song to to reach number one without any physical format. It was the first download-only song to reach number one. And what that's meant for the single since is... Is, it's it's incredibly influential and it felt like it at the time. I remember reporting on it at the time and thinking, well, what does this mean for the single? I think one of the things is it kind of almost immediately killed off the B-side, which is very mm. much something to be mourned as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that deluxe editions, the songs that where deluxe editions get bulked up with six songs that don't seem to have any relevance to the artist or the album and are just kind of thrown away, when... B-Sides were such a great chance to experiment. And Niles Barkley kind of killed that off, I feel. And again, the reverberations around, you do not own this piece of music in as much as you paid. Would it have been 99p for at the time or 79p?
0: Well, this was the tipping point that switched from the CD single, having replaced the 7-inch single, to now to this digital version. And it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that that would ever stop Whereas now
1: we're at a point where you can't actually imagine a time And that was there And you also can't imagine the time As much as I'd like to And as much as I've kind of thought How do we save the top 40 How do we get that back You know, how do do we make singles become important again As opposed to just being a a taster of the album And there's another argument to be had About how many singles should be released Before an album comes out Because it kind of feels slightly absurd That 10-track albums You'll have six different songs released from them As tasters Mm. before the album And you get the dreaded phrases Like soft launch singles And soft singles And so on and so on it's become you know the single chart has all come about marketing speak as much as it has about the music itself and that's that's disappointing when at the time as you say cd singles were very much collectible entities and i was still buying you know there's probably about nine or ten of these singles that i would have owned as cd singles at the time because although niles barkley was still you know that they would have won that uh were the innovators in that regard CD singles were still the dominant format when when Now64 came out. And when you're in a position
0: when a single act can have four or five singles in the top 10 as adverts for a forthcoming album, it does make you question the kind of purpose of what a top 40 is.
1: Yeah, and, and, I, and I know that the Official Charts Company, and I'm not blaming the Official Charts Company for, for any of this, because, you know, the, they seem to do as good a job as they can in the circumstances, and it just kind of feels like it needs some kind of you know, some genius to work out, okay, if we do this it'll work. But I don't know what the solution is. It doesn't seem unfortunately that official charts know what that solution is either. Yeah. But they have they have tried to look at it, they have limited it to I think it's three singles off, off an album. It's the most you're allowed to have in the charts now. And that's fine. You know, I think there was I think it was Ed Sheeran's last album, funnily enough, with his new album coming out this week as we record nine songs in the top ten one week, which was yeah. you know that was the tipping point But Crazy by Niles Barclay was an amazing song when it came
0: out Oh yeah, and again, I mean, it, that had been leaked It was late 2005 It started, mm. you know, first of all being heard Zane Lowe championed that quite a lot as well on Radio 1 There was a real
1: anticipation around the track and Yeah, it, 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 it was an amazing single. It's the ultimate pop moment by Deja Mouse Who's an incredible producer And it's mm. almost like it did make me go back and think it made me first think, how come Danger Mouse isn't still making amazing pop songs? Mm. But then also, on the other hand, thinking, well, it was 2006, it's 15 years ago. Yeah. So to a certain extent, Danger Mouse shouldn't be making great pop singles, because otherwise you'd be expecting, you know, Chin and Chapman to have still been making amazing singles for Nirvana. You know, it's just not going <laughs> to happen. So.
0: Oh, there's a thought. Oh, there's <laughs> a fantastic thought. We mentioned making good records. Timberland made some pretty decent records.
1: <laughs> Yes, he did. He sang And
0: uh, next to that, we've got Nelly Furtado and Manita. I'm just going to put this right out there and say I think this is one of the finest songs of the decade.
1: Absolutely agree, and it's one where I was reminded of what a fantastic song it was when I, came, you know, when I came back across this compilation. Mm. That Nelly Furtado is unfortunately she's one of these singers. It feels I I don't know the story behind it, but it feels like her career has been allowed to fade a little bit. Yeah, that people have forgotten what a fantastic pop star she can be on her day. And Eater was an incredible tune. It's Timberland at his finest. It's certainly, ne- it's Nelly Furtado at her finest, but Timberland for all his reputation, you know, deservedly so. I don't think he made I I don't think he's produced a better pop single than this for sure.
0: It still sounds different. It sounded different then, and it still has that power to
1: stop you in your tracks when you hear it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's funny that it almost seems to presage the revival of yacht rock as well. I mean, I know it's called Man-Eater and it, yeah. to a certain extent. I can't believe that Daryl Hall and John Oates haven't come after for royalties on this because they've been—they were very open about it's called Man-Eater because we wanted to make a song like Man-Eater. But it's yeah. just like, well, you absolutely have, and well done. But it was a moment of pop that could have—it feels like it could have presaged its own movement, but didn't. And it just stands alone as a as a great pop singer that you can't quite get a grasp on what it is. While yeah. also being instantly addictive
0: From Paris to Berlin, Infernal I was looking back at the official chart company Top 30 of the year This was one of the biggest songs of the year
1: It was, and it it just seems like I don't quite understand why it was one of the biggest songs of the year On any level Because it's not particularly good tune There weren't even one-hit wonders per se mm. Because they've been knocking around since About 1997 back in uh, Denmark it's for them fair play it's their it's their one moment in the sun but i don't know why that and I actually maybe i've researched this podcast too thoroughly but i listened to a couple of other infernal tracks to see is this you know is this a particularly greater moment for infernal than than anything else and other than the fact that maybe people who live in paris and berlin were buying this song at the time i don't know but it was also re-released as from London to Berlin to coincide with the World Cup 2006, in which was taking place in Germany at the time. But yeah. when England inevitably got knocked out pretty early on, <laughs> that single died a death. But no, a very, a very baffling, poor song all around. And uh, I was kind of surprised to see that Infernal actually managed to have another hit pretty soon afterwards. And again, speaking of of cover versions, that they, they covered Laura Branigan's Self Control. And I'm guessing it sounds a bit like this. Yeah, do not really, do not go and search of it as soon as you can. <laughs> I'm maybe it's just not a great version of it. I'm maybe just leave that
0: as a thought then, probably. To be honest, it's always interesting because you know you've got Niles Bartley, you've got Nelly Furtado, two two very unique big selling songs, and then suddenly you're in this kind of Europop world <laughs> of Infernal very quickly. Yeah,
1: it's it, it, it's certainly interesting, and I think that as much as Now sixty four. The compilers have done a, you know, have done an exemplary job of compiling probably the forty-three biggest songs. So you know, probably the forty-three biggest songs of that period mm. that you could very easily say they've chucked them in any old order, pretty much. We'll, we'll come onto it later, but James Morrison should yeah. not be buried at track forty in that running order that's a very, you know, it's a great song that's very influential on modern pop 15 years later Which of course now 64's compilers couldn't have known in 2006 But it feels like that's a much stronger song than, let's say, Infernals from Paris to Berlin Although you could kind of argue that was, broadly speaking, that's what pop kids wanted at yeah. the time
0: No, you're right, and actually, again, it's the beauty of hindsight Because James Morrison as you say for example you know much more influential now there's there's plenty of james morrisons around yeah. in 2021 and there's thankfully
1: maybe not as many infernals indeed yes yeah there were plenty more I and i don't say morriside i say morriside there so.
0: there's a kind of front load of big pop here and uh, rogue traders and voodoo child not a cover version, but certainly paying the royalties to Elvis Costello slightly. There's a Neighbours link here as well, isn't there?
1: There is, yeah. Uh, rogue Traders were funded by Natalie bassing who was uh, Izzy and Neighbours. And as you say, it's, it's interesting because, of course, you look at a song called Voodoo Child and you think, well, if it's going to be a cover, it's going to be Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. I don't know. It's 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 a particularly rogue move, to for want of a worse pun. To, to then have the cover version actually being Elvis Costello's Pump It Up. I quite like this song. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know why I sound quite so ashamed in <laughs> to say that, but I do quite like this version, maybe because I think Pump It Up's one of the greatest singles ever made. Yeah. That I'm all in favor of it being mashed about with however you want. And Natalie Bassingthwaite's a perfectly good singer. And I do think it's kind of amusing that, you know, again, looking into Rogue Trader's career, that she met her husband in the band. And left with her husband at the same time a couple of years after this single was a hit. And then they reformed apparently apparently they reformed in 2015 without anyone particularly asking them to, I suspect. But haven't actually done anything since. So
0: that kind of started there I as got, if you were going to say, and there's and there's a huge, fantastic range of music road traders have made since 2015,
1: but there isn't. <laughs> no, there, 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 there isn't a single song that they've made that I can find any record of. But I you know, but as I say, I'd, I'd be up for hearing other Rogue traders covers with misleading titles that actually turn out to be great songs underneath it all. It's not going to change the world. It's not as good as Pump It Up, but if you are going to have disposable covers that there were a lot of in two thousand and six, this is certainly probably Argus, probably the best one on there. Yeah, probably. Let's come I mean, back a to very that. Very low bar, but yeah.
0: <laughs> well, if the ba- if the bar is low, there, McFly, don't stop me now.
1: Personally, I am uh, Queen uh, kind of in my. They're they the what am I kryptonite, I guess. <laughs> um I you know, I like Muse, I don't like Queen, so I can't justify that on any rational basis at all. <laughs> but Queen are just not for me. I can't quite see why McFly made this, you know, it was a six number one, it was always going to be a number one single, but yeah. it was the lead single from their from their latest album. And I don't know why you'd go with the cover version as the as the lead, you know, such an obvious cover version as well. It's not like anyone didn't know what Don't Don't Stop Me Now sounded like. So no, no. why make that the lead single from your, from, from your new album?
0: I can't imagine it pushed them particularly far in the studio. It was, I'm now checking back on the sleeve notes, it was the Sport Relief single for 2006. So it obviously had all, all, the, all the boxes ticked. What I also noticed as well is the B-side was called Please, Please, and I just hoped for a minute that was the Smiths, but it's not... Because <laughs> I just love to hear. No, probably not. But there we are. I went back and checked. It's not. I'm really. I happy. mean, how
1: influential would I have been on Rick Astley and Blossoms if that had been? The case?
0: Oh, but, you see that. Like the whole world would have just have imploded in on itself. It would have been. It would have been amazing, to be honest. What's your take on the Blossoms and Rick then?
1: Uh, I, I was at the gig. I really. I oh, enjoyed it. I was. It, I was at the London one, and yeah, it was. A, it was. Uh, it was a great fun night out. And that's the thing is that. Yeah, McCasley's great, we all know that. But I really like Blossoms as well. We're mm. bang to see we seem more than any other band at the moment to live for pleasure alone. Yeah. You know, they've got their own podcast that's great fun where they just hang out in the pub for half an hour a week or whatever it is. They're great for telling journalists tall tales, as I as I've experienced myself. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was the person who broke the story that t- I knew not to be true that they were gonna make a sitcom with the monkeys. <laughs> You know, they, they 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 just live for that kind of bit of mischief, and this is the old example of it. Where, yeah. yeah, we'll we'll just do a couple of gigs with Rick Astley singing the songs of the Smiths. Yeah, I do feel that Blossoms probably should have told Johnny Marr about that, but I feel that that's unfortunate rather than being anything malicious on either party's side. That aside, I mean, for goodness' sake, it even led to Morrissey saying something pleasant.
0: Let's take two songs together, because we've got two female artists, Pink and Sandy Tom. Pink, first of all, who knew? This was
1: quite a breakout song for Pink, wasn't it? It was. It, it, it's kind of interesting. I think it's it's a textbook example of how to get yourself into the next phase of your career. You're no longer a shiny pop star. And Pink was never particularly a shiny pop star per se. But, you know, she she was doing Let's Get the Party Started. Now here she was, having had her previous album be a Bit of a stinker. Uh who knew was it's it's a beautiful song. It, you know, I mean let's not be too frothy about it because it is a very heartfelt song about a friend of hers who died died from a drug overdose. But it was done with a, a grace and dignity that made a lot of people look at Pink in a fresh light. Hmm. And it kind of got her into the next into the next few years of her career of being someone who should be taken seriously. Just a great singer songwriter, I guess ultimately really.
0: And actually as well very much a template for a lot of her contemporaries coming through of being taken seriously without actually being too serious.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that that that's absolutely right. And I, was, I, I was thinking about Katy Perry earlier on when I was looking at what Who Knew did for Pink's career because Katy Perry had a... Well, she's she's in the middle of, of another bit of dump aboutness, but <laughs> she's someone who's rescued herself before with songs like Who Knew. If you were to look at it from a... Purely commercial point of view Leaving aside the artistic integrity And what the song's about I think it's a great kind of song To get a a musician into into the next phase of their career It did incredibly well for Particularly in the States Where I think it's still possibly a best-selling single
0: Sandy Tom I wish I was a punk rocker Brackets with flowers in my hair Now, we are talking earlier about Niles Barkley And the influence of the internet This is another example of very, very early on Viral use of the internet
1: Because I think this is where this song came from Is that right? There were certainly a lot of accusations That the charts had been Somehow gained to a certain extent By, by mm. Tom and that It was one where I, I I should know more about this if I'm honest But I, I just seem to remember that it was one where She came from nowhere to suddenly have A number one single with a you know, Perfectly pleasant folk pop song But nobody was quite sure how or why I do seem to remember it being
0: everywhere. So there was definitely some team behind Sandy Tom. Maybe there's a Netflix documentary waiting here. Never...
1: <laughs> there's an ama- there's certainly an amazing 90-minute <laughs> special. I don't know if uh, if even Netflix can eke six episodes out of it, but, you know, there's there's certainly a documentary to be, to be had from it, for sure. Um, probably one that's more interesting than the song itself, if we're honest. We're now on this CD hit.
0: What was representing... What was indie by 2006?
1: Well, what indie was by 2006 was very much its own genre. And it's guitar pop music, really. Yeah. It's still, you know, if we're talking about the next kind of half dozen songs on this compilation, it's great pop music with guitars. And certainly 2006 was around about the time you first saw the phrase indie landfill banded around. As much as the person that came up with that, you know, it's a genius phrase to rank alongside Britpop, as marketing speak, or indeed in this case, anti-marketing speak. But I personally don't think it did the wider music culture any benefit to kind of almost single-handedly try and get rid of that music, which was very much the case among a certain type of music critic at the time. Right? And I think, I thought it unwise at the time, and I think it's even more unwise in retrospect. And if you look at the actors kicking it off, at the kooks, Yeah. It's interesting. I think it's fascinating that, again, 15 years later, a couple of generations of students down the line, the Kooks are actually regarded as a great pop band by today's students. And they were, alongside the Wombats, who were equally Mm. dismissed at the time, that they were going to be co headlining All Points East, which is the trend, you know, the Hippas Festival about. The Kooks pretty much couldn't get arrested by critics in two thousand and six, even though she moves in her own way, which is a single on here, is a great pop song. Yeah. And I think you can say that about Keen, about Snow Patrol, about Ray's light you know, they're all great guitar pop songs. Even Keen, which, you know, I'm a big Keen fan, but I think is it any wonder as their best single for them? It's such an exciting pop song, and as much as Tim Rice-Oxley, who's King's songwriter, might not want it to be the case, you can love it as a pop song without realising at all that it's an early example of an anti-Iraq protest song.
0: That was a song I'd forgotten about. We talk about that seven-inch culture. In some ways, that is one of the perfect seven-inches twenty years too late.
1: Absolutely. And I think I think I'm not surprised at all that it's not one of Keane's songs that gets played on the radio all the time because mm. again, going back to James Moss and you know, all Haley's influence, that <laughs> Keen were forerunners of being a pop band who who didn't really make rock songs in any way, shape or form. And Is It Any Wanderers possibly as close as they get to a rock hit? But it's not one that sounds like anything off their first album, which is full of great piano ballads that sound exactly like 2021. But again, Keen were hated at the time. I remember kind of being one of their champions in the music press and people looking at me very much askance, which I don't think they might do so quickly now. But Is It Any Wonder? it's a great Keen singer that sounds nothing like Keane.
0: And time is very good to good songwriting, let's be honest. Yeah. You know. Well, we've got the feeling as well. As far as great three-minute pop songs go, Fill My Little World is right up there.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a fantastic song. And funnily enough, coming at it from completely reverse angle, is that the feeling struggled to get taken seriously because they were a band. And they're not an indie band at all. They're a great pop band, you know, if they arrived now they'd be even more successful than they were mm. in 2006. And in 2006, they were a pretty big deal. Their first album, is, it stands up so, so well. But I remember seeing The Feeling do their their sort of industry launch gig at the Barfly as was, and the atmosphere in there was absolute hysteria. Mm. I'd seen a few successful bands do similarly small-scale gigs, but it was more passion in that room than for a lot of bands before or since i think the only the only way it went wrong for the feeling really is their second album just wasn't very good uh, yeah. the first album was amazing the second album had maybe two or three good songs on it but it was enough to put a pretty severe dent in the road at a time when bands were starting to struggle anyway and i think they've ne- commercially they've never really recovered even though dan gillespie Sells has done a heck of a lot of good work since but of course, I guess he's most famous now for, aside from the feeling for co-writing, um, everybody's talking about Jamie, the musical. And please, it's got Dan commercially back on his feet, I guess, one of the better phrases Their songs were as good as a bunch of pop songs as, has been written in the 20 years before or since
0: Razorlight, big, big year for them, 2006 America shines as the big single that year But in the morning, actually, again You know, from
1: a seven-inch culture point of view You can't knock it, it's a great song Oh, it's a fantastic song And it's, you know, it's it's interesting It was chosen as the first single Rather than America Which, of mm. course, is, is probably the song that Razorlight Are most known for now It's their only number one single It is one where Johnny Burrell's a Confidence, shall we say, is matched by the songwriting standard. It's it, mm. it's a it's a great song, and I loved it right at this time. And I think we need more idiot pop stars like Johnny Bravo around again, please.
0: Oh, don't we just now Orson?
1: Hmm.
0: Mm, Orson. Um. What can we say about Orson Bright Idea?
1: We can say it's a follow-up to their one song. Really.
0: <laughs> I always remember some fact about Orson that it was the lowest-selling number one at that point. Is that, that right? That
1: sounds about right. I mean, I think to be fair, again, going back to what we we're saying about the death of the single, that it started to be when you'd look at the single sales and go, really? You're able to sell that few copies and get to number one. And I know that's the case with Album Chart at the moment, but certainly Orson, they were a terrible, terrible band. They sounded like a bunch of session musicians. And uh, if you ask their singer, J- Jason Pepworth, to the hum it. he probably couldn't do it without no. without a few minutes of research himself now the one thing i would say to Washington fairness is they pretty quickly realized like greg alexander and new radicals they realized their career lay in songwriting because they called it a day after the second album and jason and the guitarist george astasio are now big deal songwriters under the name the invisible men and they write for charlie XEX and they wrote for little people and Iggy azalea and so on and so on and they live at a solid gold house, and we don't. So, who wins? Yeah. It's important, awesome, sadly. We've got Valerie by the Zootons. So
0: ubiquitous with Amy Winehouse, I mean, it's it's going to appear on a now not too far in the future. Really worth digging back into that original version. It's a great song.
1: It's a great song, and it's uh, it's it's a much kind of more unusual arrangement than Amy Winehouse's. I love Mark Watson, I think he's a pop genius, and I think he's an absolute pop genius for for hearing Valerie, yeah, which is would have been no one else's idea of a of a great song for Amy Winehouse, and just saying yeah, that I can do something with that because it's the Zutons being a Liverpool band, it's classic Scaldedelia the original, yeah, and I and I really like the Zutons, and I'm kind of pleased to see they're making a comeback. Nile Rodgers is producing the Zootons' comeback album, which. I certainly didn't see that coming. Maybe, but, but, maybe that would be amazing, and maybe Noah Rogers can can make them sound like the pop geniuses they they always were. Yeah, bang, bang, you're dead by the
0: Dirty Pretty thing So this is post Libertines, Carl Barrett I
1: remember. I mean, I, I, if I'm honest, as much as I like Carl Barrett I think he's you know he's 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 a really good guy. I think he's I think he's I think he's actually underrated to an extent as well as for what he does for guitar music. He does a lot to champion new underground bands still to, still now. It's interesting looking at the makeup of Dirty Pretty Things that they had people who went on to do big things behind the scenes in the industry as well. Did Hammond, the bassist from Dirty Pretty Things, who was in a band, who was in a band called the Cooper Temple Clause, who were briefly hyped for. Oh yeah, in 2001. yeah. Um, yeah Dids it's in two thousand and one. Yeah, Did Hammond is now Swade's manager. Anthony Rosamundo, who was in Dirty Pretty Things, is now another. As in, as with uh, the guys from Orson, Anthony Rossomando was a big songwriter for Nile Hall and Ellie Goulding and people like that. Guitar music was pretty much killed off at that point It's a commercial, you know, as a viable commercial concern, and has never come close to getting it back. No, in terms of a singles chart for sure. It has done to a certain extent this year in the album charts. There was a statistic from the official charts company when the Lavens got to number one to say that. It's something like twenty eight percent of number one albums this year have been made by British and Irish guitar bands, mm. which is interesting because to your point, I don't think there's been anything of that reflected in in the music press or no. certainly you know the national the national papers' music uh, music columns. I'd rather there was a new wave of guitar bands than we revisit the original wave and say, weren't the rakes fantastic?
0: We have moved towards the end of the CD. Where should we start? We've got Monster,
1: The Automatic. That's a song that hasn't gone away. <laughs> yeah, it's done for various reasons. I think it's the fact that it's one big chorus. Yeah. And it's one big chorus that works incredibly well as a football chant. And you will still hear occasional variations on it at terraces up and down the country, which for a band who only really, well, they barely lasted one album. But they had another song called Recover, which is a single before Monster. It's a great, you know, that's well worth investigating. But yeah, Monster, it's not a one-hit wonder, but it might as well be. Yeah. what a one-hit it was.
0: Well, if you're going to have one big hit, you may as well have one that children can sing every Halloween. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one, to be honest. Paul Oakenfold Hmm. and Chicane sitting here. Um, Oakenfold... Faster kill Pussycat cat. Um, so then we've got Chicane here with Sir Tom Jones. We'll give him his. I don't know if he was a sir at that point, but um, he was a sir around that point. I think. I think he must have been. And he was stoned in love. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's 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 a weird one. I mean, it's it's a song. You can say it's as it, as far as Tom Jones venturing into the dance world. It's aged more gracefully than Sex Bomb.
0: Oh yeah. yeah Again, absolutely.
1: a very low bar. It's interesting that not that long after this, Tom Jones started to make his Johnny Cash style albums that he's still making now. Mm. I kind of get the impression, if you were to look at it retrospectively, that this is Tom Jones shouting through the wilderness a little bit, you know, yeah. like making songs of Chicane, for God's sake. There must I, have... Maybe has even on... got Ethan Jones's phone number
0: to reach out <laughs> with, you, please? you could imagine almost a marketing meeting. We think we're going to move on from this phase now, Sir Tom.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're sliding out of CD one here in a kind of slightly odd fashion. Primal Scream doing their Rolling Stones impression again. I don't know which phase. Yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's a very good Rolling Stones. It's
0: impression. a good one. Uh, um,
1: yeah, I mean that's that's kind of all that you can say about it. it you know, just, everyone knows that Primal Scream like doing the Rolling Stones, and they do it. They do yeah. it better than most, and they're doing it better than most on Country Girl and. In a way, it's like, well, how come this is put, as as you say, after two not especially great dance tracks rather than in between, say, Dirty Pretty Things and The Automatic?
0: And equally Bon Jovi. Who says you can't go home?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm struggling to say anything about this Bon nah. Jovi song It's about New Jersey, as all Bon Jovi songs mm. ultimately are about New Jersey But this one's very explicit And there's actually two versions of it on their album So John Bon Jovi's particularly keen on this song, I presume <laughs> uh, But the second version is a country version of it with... A singer called Jennifer Nettles, apparently originally recorded with Keith Urban, who's a pretty big deal. Mm. But they scrapped the Keith Urban version because John Bon Jovi decided it sounded too much like John Bon Jovi for, for the song to survive.
0: Matt Willis, Up All Night. Track 21. Track 22. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Let, let's, let's rewind back to Matt Willis briefly. Go on, Matt Willis go had on. a solo career. He did. And yeah, Fallout Boy. So anyway, Fallout Boy... Um... <laughs> Oh, yeah, Out Boy, Dance Dance, second top ten single. Was was that right about the time of Evanescence and that kind of thing? And
1: if I remember correctly, Evanescence had had pioneered this sort of thing. Although Evanescence aren't aren't directly relevant, I think that their music was much better pop songs than mm. than Fallout Boy, and indeed most emo. I mean emo emo's one of those genres that I could not begin to get ahead, you know. Didn't begin to get my head around. It sounds like a it sounds like an album genre to me, and yet in Fallout Boy's Defense, this was not their last top 10 single either. And they, they went on to headline Reading and Leeds. So well done, Fallout Boy. But again, like you Orson and indeed like Matt Willis is up all night, I couldn't hum it at gunpoint, even though I heard it this afternoon.
0: It's just hanging on in there at the end of CD1. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's move on to CD2. I think we're
0: back in pop territory. The brilliant Lily Allen and Smile.
1: Yeah, this is the perfect palate cleanser, not just to open CD2, but as a restorative after Fallout Boy. Smile by Lily Allen was and is an amazing pop song. I love Lily Allen. I thought her last album was good. It was interesting, but I would have loved to another song as a pop song as good as Smile on it. That's what I want from Lily Allen.
0: This, to me, is one of the highlights of the album because, mm. like Maneater, it doesn't sound like any particular time. It is just a perfect pop song. Totally agree that,
1: yeah, it's, it doesn't sound like 2006, but nor does it sound like 1996 or 86 or 2016 or probably 2026. And if we're living in a world where every pop song is as good as Spine in 2026, then bring it on. And I think you can say that about a lot of Lily's first couple of albums as well, that mm. they were inconsistent, but... It was almost like she was like Langman with Stanley and just kind of concentrating on the singles.
0: That's a really good Comparison actually Because it's a classic British pop sound And I think that's what Makes it so So timeless
1: Yeah completely Lily Allen She's the She's the squeeze Of 2006 That's a good comparison Definitely
0: Next to Lily Allen We have got uh, We've got Soft Cell uh, Oh no yes. we haven't Sorry we, <laughs> we have got Rihanna And SOS This is a decent Pop song as well It's
1: a very good Pop song for, From a very good Pop star And as you say It is basically Tainted love And I happen to know Dave Baller little bit and he's he's very he's very open about the fact that he was delighted to unexpectedly receive a couple <laughs> of 50 pound notes as soon as uh, as soon as Rihanna released S.O.S. yeah it's it's a great pop song and this if you look at what else is on now 64 this is how to reinterpret a, a classic pop song yeah uh, Rihanna was you know she was a genius for 10 years and do you know what if she never does anything again good luck to her yeah it feels like she's kind of quietly got into pop retirement. If you remember when she, it, it seems implausible now that she did an album a year for what, seven, eight years? Yeah. And yeah. now we're, you know, it's been one album in the last 10 since and Anti, which was 2016, I think. Auntie wasn't a particularly great album, I don't think. No. Well it certainly wasn't a great Rihanna pop album, which SOS is a great example of Rihanna, you know, Rihanna doing pop better than pretty much all of her contemporaries although she does follow lily allen on this album but those are two those are two great as with cd one those are two great pop songs to open cd two
0: yeah and not to present too much of a spoiler for the rest of the listeners but there's probably not as much on cd two as
1: Poptastic as those two No there isn't, no It's interesting culturally as to where CD2 goes Yeah There's a few songs on there that would Perhaps unfortunately make for more Radio One Daytime Airplay now Mm. Than they would have done then And they presage a a fair amount Of what are number one singles now That aren't necessarily made With much passion and love But are are, are efficient is probably the best You can say for Black Eyed Peas Pump It That follows Brianna efficient (laughs) it's it's efficient i mean for someone who is as wacky and you know as genuine as a pop eccentric as he seems to be in person will i am in the studio shows none of that or very little of it in fairness to black eyed peas it comes in between my humps and boom boom power which are two decent pop songs but pump it is not a good pop song it's not a it basically is a cover of uh, Dick Dale's Mizzaloo, which is a song we all know from Pulp Fiction, and is a pretty ghastly attempt at it, I think.
0: But what you've got there, next to Rihanna, are two examples of how to do a sample really well, and how probably not to do a sample creatively very well. But we're also at the beginning on this CD of, of a lot of either cover versions... Or Samples of things And some of them just don't work very well at all And I think that's one of them
1: Absolutely agree I'd forgotten about Pump It altogether Before going back into this album It wasn't until I kind of hit play That I had this vague sense memory of Oh God, this is where the Black Eyed Peas do surf You know, (laughs) do surf rock pretty badly It's disappointing because I feel that Somewhere inside where I am Is an amazing pop star that he's never I don't know about you, but I don't feel he's ever quite let out what an amazing pop star he could be. Let's
0: pair together later on on, the, on that CD where the Black Eyed Peas pop up again with uh, Sergio Mendes doing Masconada, which, which again, is such a standard.
1: Absolutely. Although it's interesting that Masconada is credited to Sergio Mendes rather than, mm. rather than Black Eyed Peas. I, I guess if you'd to be incredibly generous... You could look at it with a jeweler's eyepiece and say it's an early example of uh, Latin American pop breaking through, which is, you know, a pretty big deal over the last few years. So maybe Black Eyed were onto something there, and well, I am had some kind of creative foresight. But I think that would be incredibly generous. I think that would be more version.
0: incredibly generous, to be honest. If we're going down the global music route on that one. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so
0: yeah, let's go back. Um Pussycat dolls. Buttons With a Z Don't remember this one Sorry Nope me neither Shall we move on Let's just move on uh, Neo And So Sick This was a big This was a big number one Actually as well
1: It's not possibly As well remembered As Smiler SOS But it is a heck of a great mm. R&B pop song This one And it is one That deserved to get To number one I think Because Neo Popped back up In the conscience This year When he was on The Mass Singer And you kind of feel like What happened to Neo mm. Who kind of Discovered Stargate Neo has largely been forgotten about Until having to remind people of who he is By getting inside a badger costume Which is no one's idea of dignity
0: No, and if you need to relaunch a career as a badger
1: Well exactly, yeah But all joking aside It's like what happened to Neo in in 15 years Because I actually think he had a better Pop intuition than Usher does
0: Yeah, yeah Next to that, we've got the one and only rap track on the whole album, which is Busta Rhymes. Not really a massive track, <laughs> touch it. Um, no, it's,
1: it, it's interesting on this compilation for being, as you say, the only example of rap music on, among the whole 43 tracks, considering how ubiquitous rap became very, very quickly afterwards. that It seems strange that rap music had less cultural currency at the time or less commercial currency at the time than a bunch of cheesy rave covers. There's probably not that many Buster Rhyme songs that have, you know, impinged a wider conscience to a certain extent. This was his seventh top ten hit. I
0: know. Christina Milian. Am I saying that right? Christina Milian? I think that's it. You are, yeah. I think I am, yeah.
1: Um, She won't be listening. Um, (laughs) CI. This, I kind of feel like it's a shame that Christina Milian, who had a couple of decent singles before this, and this isn't a particularly great single, mm. but that she was written off almost immediately after this album failed and she's not done anything since Yeah, and it feels like, I don't know if she walked away I know that she did a bit of acting but it just feels like that the music industry perhaps through some of the sexism that was certainly still prevalent in in this era that the music industry just decided to write her off and not give her a second chance whereas now you'd hope that the times have moved on at least enough to be more generous to yeah, to someone who's just had one bad album, you know, it's it's a big enough song mm-hmm. to make it onto you know to make it onto an album compilation.
0: It was a big
1: hit. It was a big hit. You know how it's like we were saying about Nelly Furtado earlier. You know, Nelly mm. Furtado's well overdue someone taking a bit of love and attention with her career. Yeah, and I feel like to a, to a smaller extent commercially, but perhaps equally as important artistically, but someone should kind of look at Christina Milian and go, "What she got to say in 2021? It just feels, you know, certainly with the time and distance we were talking about earlier with regards to guitar music, that mm. there are certain artists who deserve to be looked at afresh with, with the eyes that, you know, Christina Milian's first two albums had some singles on there that would be, comfortably be decent, uh, do decently in the marketplace in 2021. Which yeah. is more than you can say for a lot of for a lot of the artists on here. Perhaps. Yeah. Next
0: track is something that's very 2006, which is the Ordinary Boys with Lady Sovereign. This was Preston. This was the Ordinary Boys. It was celebrity big brother. There was a, there's a lot going on in that two thousand and six culture in this in this
1: track. As you say it could be more two thousand and six, not not least for the fact that of all the artists they choose to collaborate with, it's Lady Sovereign, who is the sound of two thousand and six in that yeah. regard. Well, a couple of interesting things about this. Firstly, this is the song that the Ordinary Boys chose to go with as their comeback single after Preston had been in the Big Brother house. Yeah. I do remember at the time that and I quite like the first couple of Ordinary Boys albums. Mm. This album is a real turkey. It is absolutely shocking. And although 9 to 5 is a pretty bad song, at least you can kind of see what they were trying to do. Because now... You know, you can't move for bands doing collaborations with artists from other genres. But it was still a pretty unusual move to make, particularly as the first single from your much-vaunted post-Big Brother album that (laughs) The Ordinary Boys at least had the idea of going for it. And again, going back to the professional songwriter side of things, that as soon as this album duly tanked and The Ordinary Boys split up... and. Preston went on to be a a fairly well-respected songwriter for hire himself. So basically, the
0: legacy of Now64 is that Orson, the Dirty Pretty Things and Preston have basically just written music for the rest of the the last 15 years.
1: Yeah, they, they they have. I mean, you know, you wouldn't necessarily... Although I think if you were to give it to people in the industry and say, pick out three of these artists... Who are now songwriters for hire. If you didn't know who they were, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, you'd, you'd have awesome <laughs> new ordinary boys and dirty pretty things members as being no. among the ones who would now go on to, be, to become songwriters for okay. hire, perhaps.
0: Um, Sugar babes. Than the red, red, red. this
1: is version.
0: Virtually- what is this, version 4.2 of The Sugar Babe? I'm not sure what version this is of The Sugar Babes, but it is a fantastic track, Red Dress.
1: It's a brilliant track, but it's also, it's interesting you say which version of Sugar Babes is this, because the album version and the single version are different incarnations of The Sugar Babes. Really? Because the album version is has got Mushu on it, and the single version is the first song to feature Amel um, on it. So, oh, yeah. uh, so there we are, Sugar Babes historians. You know, if you'd forgotten that, then... Uh, take that away but it is it is a great yeah it's a great sugar babe song and also going back to how great b-sides can be the b-side of this is sugar babes version of i bet you good on the dance floor so again pop indie crossover fans which is maybe why the compilers perhaps knew more than they were letting on by putting this after the ordinary boys and lady sovereigns collaboration
0: oh good spot and what a fantastic cover version that is as well
1: yeah an amazing cover version And I I could be wrong about this, and I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but I think Arctic Monkeys did a cover version of a Sugar Babes track as well.
0: Oh, that rings a bell. Um, And there'll be people listening now going, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But what one would it have been? I don't know. I I don't know. know. Listen to us. Arctic Monkeys obsessive. Send your emails in now. (laughs) So we're talking about a really inspired cover version. We've got this run here of, well, Rockwell, Robin Beck, and Bronsky Beat.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, all equally terrible. It's bizarre that it is almost the sound of night, you know, early rave music as well. And you know, when rave met, you know, when rave met Euro Disco, which is a Netflix documentary nobody needs to make, no, but, no, um, that it is Beat Freaks, Dutch Trio, Sunblock, Swedish Duo, Super Mode, Super slightly interesting, even though their song. It's the most heinous of them all for being a mashup of I "Why" and "Small Town Boy" it's by Bon which is, yeah. is the kind of hackneyed, commercialised dreck that even, well, I am might kind of turn his <laughs> nose up at. But Supermode are two thirds of Swedish House Mafia who are still oh, Coachella know. headliners in twenty twenty one. I honestly think the Swedish the Swedish House Mafia should be retrospectively cancelled for for this uh, <laughs> Bon Beat beat mashup, which is absolutely awful. I think after three, if I had to choose, I'd probably go for Sunblock because at least they've got Robin Beck's vocals in there.
0: Yeah, and there's such an abandon in that track. Whereas the yeah. others are a you know, the others are a bit more contrived, whereas Sunblock is just saying, Do you know what? We are we are just going supernova with this. Yeah.
1: We're <laughs> just gonna house up a song that doesn't need housing up. But what I'll say about Sunblock, at least they're having fun. Yeah. It
0: which is. I
1: don't think you can say about the other two.
0: In the middle of that kind of mishmash is bob sinclair bob sinclair uh, featuring steve edwards we'll give him his credit um world hold on this is probably the biggest dance track on the album i suppose
1: yeah it is and bob sinclair wasn't you know he he made some pretty good dance tracks for a couple of years around about this time and world hold on brackets children of sky close brackets yeah it's 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 not a bad dance tune you kind of always look at him and go well, he, he was he was David Guetta 1.0, really I'd kind of assumed that Bob Sinclair had gone behind the scenes Probably, you know, probably like Preston from The Ordinary Boys Writing songs for other people now But I was very surprised to see that he had a single out as recently as 2019 That featured Robbie Williams
0: I didn't now, know this
1: Bob Sinclair featuring Robbie Williams would have been gigantic in 2006 But, you know Maybe
0: there was just a backlog Maybe it's been sitting in the pipeline since 2006 <laughs> And nobody found it And went, oh, hang on <laughs> Let's get this back out but would,
1: I mean, would that surprise you, with Robbie Williams?
0: career? No, no, not at all. Let's rewind to the beginning of the 2000s when the big culture was mashups. Mm. Uh, listeners will no doubt have bought into the Soulwax album and all of those wonderful bootleg mixes of things. And six years later, we've got this um, musty, uh, horny as a dandy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a terrible, terrible type. Not least for the fact that you know, going back to my love of Adamant, I'd I'd assume that Horny as a Dandy would be some kind of oh, that would have been a mashup. But, oh, yeah. Uh, but no, no, it's not. It's uh, Horny as a Dandy Warhol because it's a mashup of oh. Horny with the Dandy Warhol's Bohemian Like You. It, that's a bizarre enough concept in itself. But then, you know, they were probably big. Well, they were probably big about the same time as mashups themselves, weren't mm. they? So this, this is a song that. It's,
0: it's just completely it was, out of it surely
1: had been sitting around since 2002 And some <laughs> record company executive pressed the button on it four years late But I'm not a fan of Moose T or indeed of Horny 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 But um, I like the Dandy Warhols And I'm kind of gutted that they went out of their way to re-record Bohemian Like you specifically for this mashup
0: I'm listening but I'm still imagining Adam and Moose T
1: I don't think Adam would ever lower himself to, I don't to think Moose so. T's level
0: I don't think um, so and no. I do hope
1: that this doesn't mean that Adamant's next album is produced by Moose Tea, but uh, we we live oh. in trepidation. We live mm. in trepidatious times. Definitely, we 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 live in end times, and nothing would say end times more <laughs> than Moose Tea versus Adamant. <laughs>
0: So we have one more dance track before we slide into the ballad section on the way out of the album, which is, a, a, again, a bit of an odd one. Shapeshifters uh, featuring
1: Sheik. Yes. Again, to be fair to the Shapeshifters, now Rogers was pretty much going through one of his wilderness years periods at this mm. point. Anyone who gets nile rogers a payday you can't completely knock them i think this i could be wrong but i think this is the smallest commercial hit of everything on the album it only got to number 40 so it barely qualifies as a now song and no. i don't quite know what it's doing on there, other than the fact that it's it's a relative palate cleanser after Moose tea before before the rest of the album but i
0: suppose so yeah
1: i'm sure uh, nile did his thing and yeah collected the paycheck and then never thought about it again and you Know, unless he's listening to this podcast, he probably won't remember doing it
0: either. Probably not. If you're listening, Niall, let us know. Are you still doing Christmas cards with the shapeshifters? Beverly Knight. Um, I love Beverly Knight, I, I, I think she's wonderful. She's just a fantastic vocalist. Um, peace of my heart not really needed is it
1: it's not really needed and I think as much as I love Beverly Knight as you say an amazing voice and has half a dozen amazing singles in in her catalogue and this mm. was the the token new song and know the best of so it was always going to be a cover version and and yeah. Beverly Knight deserves better
0: Exactly, we've mentioned James Morrison already And I think you've pointed this out It really hadn't struck me before This is doing this song a real disservice Sliding it in at this point on the album Because You Give Me Something is is now a bit of a standard
1: It absolutely is a bit of a standard I think it always sounded like a standard then Mm. And as much as I kind of, you know Along with probably most of the rest of the country Feel that there's far too many singer-songwriters now Thank you James Morrison arrived at a time where there weren't that many of them. And he just said, you know, You Give Me Something at the time sounded like nothing else, really. It's not a timeless song, I don't think. I think it should have been something that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. And he does incredibly well to, to evoke that era. And for a couple of albums there, it sounded like he was going to be the man. But he never, I don't know why, and I don't, you know, but James never quite seemed to break out of being the support actor after the main actor. Two years later, Ed Sheeran arrives, and that's Good Night, Vienna. But, you know, a great song, and certainly should be higher up the rankings than... Sandwich Between Beverly Knight And not one of Will Young's best singles
0: Yeah, Will Young, again I had to go back and listen to this one again It didn't jump out
1: And could you remember it now?
0: No, I still can't Actually, <laughs> It could it could run in this room right now Run right past me I probably still wouldn't recognise it And you know what? We're not going to knock Will Young Because Will Young is great But that's not a great song
1: No, it's not I mean, we're, you know, Will has Again, as we speak Will Young's announced his 20th anniversary compilation album And There'll be many, you know, there are many fantastic songs on there, but I haven't checked it. But I doubt that Who Am I, which was, you know, the last single of his third album, is on that track listing. Unless it's to give the the album a decent title, because Who Am I is not a bad title for a compilation album. That's
0: good. No. Other than that,
1: there's no reason for that song to exist.
0: Yeah. Ronan Keating making his final now appearance to date all over again only thing I can say about this is the wonderful Kate Rusby is on it.
1: Exactly, yeah I didn't know that this was Ronan's last appearance on a on a Now album to date but, he, you know, Ronan deserves better than this being his last appearance on a yeah. on a Now compilation album and frankly so does Kate Rusby, I mean it's, it just reeks of who can I phone, to, you know, who can I phone to get a, pretend to be a serious artist I don't want Ronan Keating being a serious artist and I don't want Kate Rusby to be hanging around with Ronan Keating, it doesn't leave them any credit and The results were as compromised as you'd imagine. It's a white old cut and shunt of a single.
0: From the Ronan Keaton album, Compromise. To finish off, now 64, should Girls Aloud ever be last on a new album? Again, whole lot of history isn't one of their big... It's a big ballad. Um, and it was the last single from the Chemistry album as well. But it's it's the end of something, I suppose, for Girls Aloud.
1: Yes, it is. And it's it, it's kind of, you know, it is the last single they released before doing the Best Of. And mm. Something Kind of Ooh, which was the, the new single on the Best Of, is ten times a song that a whole lot of history is. Mm. But a whole lot of history is not bad, you know, no. girls allowed when they never quite mastered the ballad. No, I don't think. But this is—it does its job perfectly well, and I think that's probably why it's the last one now, sixty-four, because it's a big old ballad to end things with from a band that everybody loves and um, who already had an incredible run of great singles behind them. So yeah. they were allowed a six out of ten song like this is. So. Absolutely. Six Absolutely. out of ten on a compilation that musically is probably a six or a seven, but culturally is an eight or a nine, so well, it, well it, done, the allowed.
0: It is a fascinating album. Again, the beauty of all the new albums is they exist within a context, and that's what makes them so interesting to revisit. So what would you keep from this album now in 2021?
1: Musically, you'd have to pick Niles Barkley.
0: Mm.
1: You'd have to pick Lily Allen. You'd have to pick Nelly Furtado. I'd certainly keep The Feeling and The Kooks, Raise Light and Keen. Uh, are they the ones? I'd keep Neo and I'd keep Rihanna, of course. They'd probably be the ones. It's interesting that this is an album where to a certain extent the big songs are the best songs. Mm. There are some, you know, there are some good songs that I'd remembered personally and you know, maybe maybe yourself at Come back to them with fresh ears and thought, oh, yeah, that's not actually so bad. But as an indie obsessive, the indie tunes on here are among the ones that I keep. And otherwise, it's mainly the ones that I'd, uh, you know, the big pop tunes are the best ones on here. Does it represent summer 2006? I think it probably does. I think it, yeah, I I think it probably does. And I also think it represents, as we were saying, the the kind of changeover of the guard from guitar pop having cultural relevance to, you know, to look, you know, you look at Buster Rhymes and rap eventually because you know pretty soon become the dominant form. yeah
0: and we talk about saving the top 40 and the change of the guard one week after this album was released the final episode of top of the pops aired
1: yes and again if you want the death of the single personified it's the fact that top of the pops ended about 10 minutes after this album came out nothing says death of a single like death of top of the pops you know the two go the two go hand in hand very well. And certainly I think Top of the Pops itself had sadly become tighter than the single had been at that point. But at that point, it felt like a good idea to gently excise Top of the Pops from the schedules. But 15 years later, is there a version of it that could come back? Not in exactly the same format, but I think there is certainly a commercial music showcase that could happen in 2021. As much as we all love the Dylan Jones documentaries about the 80s And so on, and as much as I think Later Does a great job, it feels like There needs to be a mood to capture What pop music is in 2021 But alas, Port Opera Pops You know, see you later On and the lights were off
0: (laughs) John, thank you so much for joining me Here at the Back to Now podcast And uh, taking us back to summer
1: 2006 It's been an absolute pleasure Thanks so much for inviting me on Cheers for thinking of us